this week's episode of Cinema 60, Bart and Jenna focus on French 60s icon Anna Karina and the seven features and one short she made with Jean-Luc Godard. Uh, should I give a little uh, intro about Jean-Luc and the, and the new wave and, uh, and all that? Yeah, tell us about it. Okay. Uh, Jean-Luc Godard uh, was one of the key figures in the French New Wave, uh, which um, was a group of French film critics, uh, including François Truffaut, Eric Romer, Jacques Rivette, Claude Chabrol, and they were writing for uh, the Cahiers du Cinema in the 50s, really um, pretty obsessed with Hollywood cinema and uh, with the directors in particular, and they created the auteur theory, which, you know, we, these days we don't even, uh, you know, think about how, uh, it's the, it's the director who's, uh, whose voice we're, we're hearing primarily when we're watching a movie, but, uh, back in the 50s, it wasn't such a, such a common idea, and, uh, and the French New Wave critics, uh, the, the Cahiers critics, decided uh, that, uh, that, yeah, they really wanted to latch on to some of these, like, Alfred Hitchcock, Howard Hawks, some of these figures, and, and, uh, and to really explore how all of their movies are, um, were personal expressions uh, of, of, uh, of themselves. And uh, when they decided that they wanted to make their own movies, they, uh, that was kind of the, uh, their, uh, their inspiration. They wanted to make these movies where they uh, were speaking directly to the audience. The real enemy for the, these French New Wave critics were these uh, cold, studio-bound French movies. Uh, Francois Truffaut referred to them as uh, as Papa Cinema, and they're um, you know really not saying anything personal at all. They're just these bland entertainments, uh, these romances or adventures that uh, really uh, have have no pulse. And uh, the Cahiers critics decided that uh, that that French cinema really needed to be shaken up. To, and have the the, the old guard uh, relieved of their duties and and replaced with uh, with a more with a more exciting, a revolutionary type of cinema, where they're not uh... in a studio, reading off of a script that's been written. I guess it's sort of. I mean, does this sort of reflect also the, the what was happening in music at the time, right? That you got more singer songwriters. I think a lot of it is just this. Um, the the 50s was the era of the teenager the the, the teenager sort of became a this the socioeconomic group and uh and wanted to separate themselves from the previous generation as much as possible they they've got spending power and they want to spend it on rock and roll records and they they just want to do everything differently than uh than their uh than their parents did and i think these new wave directors, these French New Wave directors uh, were, were sort of part of that movement where everything has to be brand new. We, we have to do everything differently than it's been done before. You saw that in music as well when, uh, with, uh, when rock and roll sort of became a thing, became packaged for, for mass audience, for a white audience in the mid-50s. And yeah, so I, I think it's it's all part of that spirit. And this, the French New Wave was not the only new wave going on in the world. Every European country, every I mean, not just Europe, Japan had a had a new wave that that began in the in the '60s, and and these all sort of happened independently of each other. Uh, a lot of Eastern European uh, 
Polish cinema was really starting to get exciting at this time in the in the late fifties. You know, e- everywhere. So the French New Wave just happened to be the um, because they were the most organized and vocal. They had a, a magazine, the Cahiers du Cinéma, that was sort of a a mouthpiece for their ideas. Um, and most importantly, they their movies were successful. So uh, in nineteen fifty nine, Truffaut's Four Hundred Blows swept con made was a huge sensation and that sort of ushered in the french new wave era and uh, and all of truffaut's pals at uh, the Cahiers du cinema uh, plus you know some other uh, young young french directors uh, who were active at the time sort of got swept up in this this whole french new wave that was happening that was actually you know there was it was really a marketing tool more than anything else the the French press wanted to wanted a, a way to describe all of these uh, these exciting new French films that were happening. So, uh, so they sort of slapped this French New Wave label on a bunch of movies made by directors who weren't even necessarily part of the who weren't critics and weren't, weren't part of the Cahiers du Cinema crew, like Alain Rene, Anya Varda, Jacques Demy, uh, some of these people, and um, Jean Luc Godard, who we're discussing today probably represented how what a what a radical break from what was happening before that the that the French new wave was. Well, this is Jean-Luc Godard is like, you know, the is he's I, when I think of um a like cinema nerd or something like that, I feel like he's the, you know, the one that everyone uh, rallies behind. You know, he's sort of the the cliche pretentious cinema, except that it's great. It's really good. <laughs> well, there's there's also a playful spirit to his stuff that doesn't seem to get recognized enough. He's sort of he's sort of pin, pointed out for his pretensions, but uh, but but nobody seems to ever think about it. At least with his uh, his early '60s movies, they're really all just a goof. He's just having fun. Which I, I, I kind of wonder, I kind of wonder if that was really uh, Anna Karina and, and her influence. Because I think after her, he does some good stuff, but it kind of dro- it gets more serious. And that's when he bores me. I have, a mixed, I have mixed emotions about him in general. Some of his movies I absolutely adore. Some of the movies that we're going to talk about today are movies that easily top 10 uh you know best movies in the world kind of thing but uh he he when unchecked is just can be gratingly obnoxious <laughs> and also his his relationship with women is is always really questionable but i have to say that his movies with anna karina she is always such a breath of fresh air and she is so i mean never mind the fact that she is just gorgeous and unfairly beautiful <laughs> and perfect in every way but um you know she's also just she's such a, a like a, a ray of uh you know light and she brings this aura and a playfulness and fun to his movies even when she's being cast in a more serious film of his yeah it's um i mean when he doesn't allow her to to be playful. I think his his movies definitely suffer. Those are I think uh, I think we both seem to agree that uh, you know when when he lets Anna Karina just do her thing, just just mess around on screen. Th- those are the movies that were that we're primarily drawn to. Yeah, she's like the original like manic pixie dream girl, but 
she actually does have soul when he allows her to uh, be more than just that. <laughs> yeah. Which is why, you know, actually, so for this podcast, I started to look into a little bit more of her background, which I had known some of, but I didn't realize how sad it was, which was really terrible because, again, she's this, like, bright light of, like, beauty and uh, intelligence and charm in all of these movies, in every movie that she's in, always. And then the the sort of backstory about her is, is sort of depressing, she had come from Denmark, uh, where she, I think, lived in foster care for a couple of years. And when she was a teenager, she essentially ran away from home and uh, moved to France on her own. And uh, she basically got spotted by a woman on the street who thought that she should be a model. And because it was a woman, very specifically, and not some creepy guy saying, hey, you want to be a model, she uh, you know, followed through and ended up doing a bunch of commercials and things like that. And then uh, she did this palm olive commercial where she's sitting in a bathtub with all of these bubbles around her. So she sort of looks like she's, you know, naked in the bathtub and she just, you know, holds up a palm olive soap container. And you can see that on YouTube, actually. It's, it's sort of sort of dopey. But apparently this commercial caught Jean-Luc Godard's eye because she was so beautiful. And when he was looking to cast somebody in a movie, he had um, thought about her because he wanted someone to pose nude in his movie. So he reached out to her and said, hey, I want you to do my movie. Uh, and also there's a nude scene. And she said, nope, absolutely not. <laughs> and he said, what's the problem? You, you showed up nude in the commercial. She was like, I was wearing a bathing suit. I was nude in your mind and totally shot him down again. So until he cut the nudity out of the, the uh, movie is only when she agreed to do it. Which ended up being uh, the first movie on our list here, which is Les Petites Soldats. And he was, and he offered her a lead role in that movie, whereas it was just a, it was a minor role in, in Breathless, I, I believe. So I think maybe her, uh, you know, the, the gutsiness of her, for saying no uh, to him, to to be in his movie and and to pose nude for him was uh, maybe maybe that was part of why, he, uh, he he thought she'd be strong enough to play the lead in Le Petit Soldat, but she's um, she's definitely not the uh, the Anna Karina that she becomes in this movie. Yeah. So let's let's talk a little bit about this movie. It takes. It's about um, sort of the Algerian War, right? Yeah, the um, the Algerian War was happening at uh, at the time that this movie was being made, and uh, and I believe Godard had really uh, kind of mixed feelings about it. He knew he felt something about the Algerian War. I'm just not sure he knew exactly what. So he decided to uh, to make this movie, Le Petit Soldat, just about how confusing it is how how confusing the war was and how confusing it was for french people to understand what to feel about it um i mean confusion is really um the 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 key to this movie um because it's it's really impossible to to understand what's going on really you've got a bunch of spies and it's you don't know what they're after exactly 
You're making me feel better because I did not enjoy this movie. <laughs> well, I'm in reality, really, like to to start our discussion of any Jean Luc Godard movie with a plot summary is is absolutely pointless because <laughs> nobody cares about plot less than than this guy. Well, this this movie is kind of interesting though because he shot it, you know, to be released for 1960. But it got um, held back by uh, government censors, right? And got released in 63. Yeah, that's right. After, I guess, I guess the uh, Algerian war was still going on, but it sort of hit a, a new phase, hit a plateau or something. And they decided that Le Petit Soldat was not too dangerous for people to see at, uh, at that point. Which is so strange to me because I had the, a similar reaction of, is this really saying anything so controversial? <laughs> <laughs> May, uh, I mean, maybe just... Uh, just the questioning is enough for for France to say we don't we don't want we don't want French people to think we just want to we want to tell them what what uh, what they what they feel about this war which historically has worked really well for yeah. France in the past yeah. yeah I mean it's just full of contradictory ideas the the lead character is um, he has a name right Paul aren't all his characters named Paul <laughs> I think it's Bruno <laughs> oh Bruno right let's see. Um, yeah, he's a he's a he's like an expat living in Geneva, right? Well, he's a he's a French spy, and he's he's trying to to get out of the biz, I think. But the uh, his uh, his fellow spies track him down and try and get him to kill somebody. And then, meanwhile, Anna Karina is this Veronica who may or may not be working for the other side. Really, he just gets mixed up with her so he can photograph her because he's. Uh, not only is he a uh, a French spy, but he's also a fashion photographer, as, as they are. <laughs> and uh, and one of his uh, one of his spy buddies says, uh, "Oh, you should meet this girl. I think you'll really like her. I'll give you fifty bucks if you don't fall in love with her." And uh, and sure enough, almost immediately he falls in love. Yeah, he he says to her, he says, "Shake your hair," and she does it, and he goes, he throws fifty dollars at his friend. <laughs> She's well cast. She's uh, she he picked the right uh, actress to to uh, to portray somebody that uh, some guy could fall in love with immediately after, uh, you know, just seeing her shake her hair. Well, she's like 19 in this movie, too, which I, I never really realized how young she was, because when she met Godard, she was 18 or 19. I mean, this is really the beginning of it all. And she looks I mean, she looks older in the sense that she has that sort of ageless, perfect look she's like so she's she's beautiful i'm in love with her but she has a baby voice in this though i think even between this and a woman as a woman which was made later the same year i think um she's she grew up a bit but you know that that probably just might be the difference between her taking a few acting lessons uh between between films or maybe coming out of her shell a little bit i guess if this was her first movie technically so, so what did you get from this movie, really? Because I feel, I, I mean, there's some interesting, the, the scenes of torture, which I believe are what, you know, the, the French government was upset about, uh, besides the questioning, are pretty tame in my mind. But, you know, it's basically like him being sort of waterboarded, and then they take some matches and they hold it under his hand. And that kind of sucks, but <laughs> like it... And it's not very convincing either. Right. It's, it's done. It's staged in such a way where I'm not sure you're really supposed to believe that it's happening. You, you don't feel like he's 
Bruno has suffered that much by the end of this torture session. But I think uh, just the idea that uh, that the French that that under the auspices of uh, of the French government, uh, their their torture was happening. I think that was enough to get this movie banned. But yeah, the torture scenes were um, were not that convincing, but they were memorable. Like when you think about this movie, that's you think of Bruno in the bathtub with the with the wet cloth over his face. Uh, but other than that, the, the spy story really leaves very little impression. Really, all all you remember about this movie are the two scenes in uh, in Karina's bedroom or in her apartment where Bruno is the first time photographing her and asking her all sorts of questions about her life. And uh, the second one where Bruno is uh, talking about himself himself and, and what he believes in. <laughs> Which I hated. I just hated the last, like, the last 15 minutes of this movie is just, it, and, it, and what sucked about it is that it really just feels like Godard speaking through this character and just, like, the, the stuff that he says when he gets drunk and it's, you know, one in the morning and he has, like, a bunch of people that are sitting around him and are forced to listen to him. It's really obnoxious, actually. Except I don't really believe that half... Probably approximately half of what Bruno's saying is anything that Godard actually believes. I mean, he's talking about... Um, he talks about how natural racism is. Right. And he also talks about how he's okay with, uh, with children being killed in other countries because he'll never meet them. He doesn't know them, so it doesn't matter. I, I don't really think that, that Godard wants us to believe that those are actually how he feels. There may be thoughts that crossed his head, but he... Um, well, he put them in the mouth of this confused person. So we're, we're I, I, I don't know how much of it we're supposed to take as, as Godard's opinion. Well, the thing is that Bruno has this obsession with art, which is definitely a, a Godard obsession, which you see throughout. So that's why it gets sort of confusing to watch this, especially having seen all of these other movies in the past. Anyhow, like maybe if this was my first introduction or something, I, you know, I, I wouldn't be so suspicious <laughs> but um yeah i don't know it's this 15 minute speech that he goes through you know how um thoughts are more important than the well-being of his fellow man and yet he says that he hates Cam camus and you're like i'm pretty sure that's what camus about <laughs> uh you know about all this racist stuff uh how you know art is more important than nationalism and how, uh, and then he just goes on to this thing about how special and unknowable he is and how, you know, everything that he thinks is so wonderful. And throughout this 15 minute speech, you have Anna Karina literally sitting on a bed, just staring at him. And after he just goes on and on, like, like every guy you've ever met in college, <laughs> you know, thinking how smart and, and cool he is, he turns to Anna Karina and he's like, why do you love me? And you're like, ah, I don't fuck. I have no idea. <laughs> I mean, that's definitely Godard. Him spouting off for a long time, saying a bunch of nonsense, and then hoping that uh, that people love him after he goes off, and sort of counting on the fact that people love him. I mean, I think his his whole career is uh, is sort of like this one scene. It's 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 him just following whatever gut instinct he has. Oh, this amuses me, so I'm going to put it on film. These, these are the things I like, so I'm going to put it on film, and you're either going to follow me on this journey or you're not. But at the same time, he's, uh, you know, 
I hope people will follow me on this journey. I hope I hope people love me. I hope people think that I'm as cool as I think I am. It is. It's that the that grasp that insecurity there's also i remember in this speech he says something about how women don't age as well as men and you're like get out of here <laughs> i mean i think they probably all are thoughts that that godard has had that he he's he's definitely generated all of these thoughts but i think he he's not he's giving uh he doesn't give them them equal credence and i think that he's godard himself is pretty confused about what he believes and what he thinks, and uh, well, we, when we when we move on to to my my life to live, he has a philosopher who uh, I think is 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 a better mouthpiece for for Godard himself than than Bruno is in this movie. Well, the next movie is actually one of my favorites, and it's the movie that when I first saw it made me like totally fall in love with everyone involved, uh, including Godard, who then later disappointed me as I watched other movies of his. But uh, a woman is a woman. 1961. It's, un femme es un femme. It's a delightful film. It is delightful. On se demande pourquoi tout le monde est fou de moi. Ce n'est pas compliqué. Voilà la vérité. It's sort of, I guess, it's his um, both tribute and takeoff on American musicals. Yeah, it's a musical without uh, much singing, and that's actually one of my my favorite effects in this movie is that he the the, the music swells and you think people are going to burst into song, but then they don't. <laughs> but it's but the whole thing does have kind of a musical spirit to it. It's all kind of inconsequential in a way. It's all brightly colored and and uh, you know everyone is. Uh, you know, hamming it up. And it's also sort of deeply sarcastic, which is, but but it it loves it at the same time. It's definitely not meant to be a screw musicals musical, but it is completely undercutting everything as it's as it's performing it. Because as you said, yeah, that's, it's bright, it's colorful, it's fun, it's cheerful, but then the plot is about like an exotic dancer who wants to get pregnant and will have sex with any, any guy to do so because her boyfriend... It doesn't want to. Is that the point of the, the, the title of the movie? A woman is a woman? That there women just want to have babies? I don't know. <laughs> it makes you wonder. I mean, that is that is the type of thing that like annoys me about Godard because you get that sort of theme. You like He will throw stuff like that out constantly and enough that it doesn't feel like he's... like It feels like he's sort of saying it sarcastically, but he does it so often that you kind of get the sense that he isn't. It does sort of seem like an arbitrary decision on Angela's part. Uh, you know, you don't see her looking at babies in the street and, uh, you know, saying goo goo gaga to them. Or you, you, she, she repeatedly says that all she wants is to have a baby, but you don't, you know, other than her repetition of that, there's, there's not a whole, you know, we just sort of have to take her word for it in a way. It seems like more of a plot point than anything else. It just seems, un- it seems undercooked. I mean, it is a plot, yeah, for sure. I mean, that's a, the only plot point really in this is is you know that she wants a baby but he definitely spends no time figuring anything else out about that but at the same time you know i love musicals but a lot of musicals are quite similar (laughs) which is why i can almost give it to him as you know i think that this was sort of this takeoff on how people in musicals get so fixated on one goal and then 
you know, that's everything for the entire movie. That's a good point. And there's very little psychological depth in a, in a musical, much like a Godard movie, that it, it's all surfaces and you don't really get inside the heads of anybody. I guess in, I guess in a musical, you've, you've got the musical numbers. Those are, in general, are supposed to give you the internal thoughts of these characters right. and, and tell you what they're, what they're really after. But by, uh, by skipping the songs, I think, in this musical, it's, it's sort of Godard is, is, is able to maintain his, his old tricks of, of never really getting inside anybody's head. Yeah, he kind of relies just on the charm of all the actors, which is perfect because, again, Anna Karina is always charming. Jean-Claude Brialy is also super charming and attractive. John Paul Belmondo, also just charming and attractive in this movie. I love Brialy, um, and I mean he's he's the star of my favorite film, uh, Eric Romare's Claire's Knee. But you know, put him up against Belmondo, and he's always going to suffer in comparison. I mean, he he seems he's got some charming scenes in this movie, but uh, not half the charm that Belmondo has. Well, he get Belmondo gets that sort of dance scene, which isn't really a dance scene. It's just them posing, where they the anything you can oh. do, I can do better thing. That that like is such a standout. <laughs> But but Brialy has the book scene, which is one of my top, you know, five favorite scenes ever in a movie, basically, where he's uh, Emil, who's her boyfriend, and uh, they're they're arguing about, you know, whether or not they should have this baby. And Emil says, why do we have to have this now? There's plenty of time. And she start they start picking fights with each other that come across as pretty childish, but but fun. There's no point where you're sort of cringing at this movie. All of these, everything's so lighthearted. It's actually just super enjoyable. But I love there's a scene where they're in bed and they refuse to talk to each other. So they get out of bed. They take the lamp. They walk over to the bookshelf. They'll pick up a book, something that's like, you know, has, has a title that they then cover with their hands in order to just have a couple of words show up. So it'll say things like, Monster. you know, one, one book says all women and another one says to the firing squad. <laughs> Mm-hmm. That's definitely a standout scene in that movie, and it, and Godard knows how good that scene is because he does it twice. Right. So Godard's first movie, Breathless, was actually very playful, and the uh, the scenes there between Belmondo and Gene Seberg have have kind of a, this uh, this playful quality that this movie has, and I feel like in in a way Godard knew that those bedroom scenes in in Breathless were what really drew people to that movie, why it was a box office hit. This crazy movie with um, terrible editing and no story somehow became a, a box office hit in France. And across the world, it got it got a lot of fans in 1960. And he, um, a woman is a woman, is uh, is him picking up on the on the most crowd pleasing parts of, of Breathless and and making a whole movie out of them. That's interesting. I I don't disagree with you. I think Breathless, though, I do remember it being more sincere overall than this one. And I think that again, part of why I personally was really drawn to this movie, even though. None of the themes are themes that I particularly care about, <laughs> except for the musical aspect. But I, I think the fact that he, he all at once is indulging in musical theater and also subverting it was really what drew me to this because I'm someone who uh, personally can't like something without having something critical to say about it. <laughs> like to me, that's all just part of liking something. So I felt that's kind of what this was about. It's like that sort of the the knowledge of, uh, you know, indulging in something super silly, but also being, you know, self-aware about it uh, was, was kind of, I think, 
was part of the the big selling point for me. Yeah, I mean, it's Jean Luc Godard is cinema. I'm I'm sure there's some title screen where he writes that, and uh, his interest more than anything else is the movies, and that's the I mean, the meat of any of his movies is cinema itself. So I think that there's really there's just as much meat to this movie as there is in any of his because it's all about trying unexpected things shooting scenes in ways that no one has ever shot them before playing around with the sound a lot you know having the sound cut out blurring music on the soundtrack and then dropping out the sound completely for no particular reason and uh stopping and talking to the man on the street for a little bit for no particular reason or having the characters wink at the camera all his movies are equally serious about how they just he wants to shake up film language and he wants to do what's never been done before. Was this his first color movie? Yes. Yeah, his third his third film and it was his first color. Because he also establishes in this movie his iconic red, white, and blue look, which appears again and again. Uh, maybe very patriotic. Mm-hmm. I don't think that was totally what he was thinking. It's just as much as the, the reds in his movies. Oh, it absolutely was yeah, what he you was think? thinking. Absolutely. I just think that the the reds look so beautiful in all of his movies. I, it almost to me feels like it was purely aesthetic. <laughs> there, there are more pinks in this movie than uh, than he'll ever have again. I think he he dropped some of the pastels out of his palette and went for for straight primaries after this. He keeps that pastel blue around, which is really it's like always the bright fire engine red. And then a, a sort of mellower blue to a really bright royal blue. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm a big fan of the colors in his movies. <laughs> On top of that, he also sort of, I feel like, invented the uh, whole minimalist uh, hipster look that you still see today. Never mind Anna Karina, by the way, who every outfit that she wears in every single one of these movies is absolutely iconic and continued to be worn today by models and movie stars and everyone in Brooklyn. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I might say that Anna's greatest skill as an actress is her ability to wear clothes because she really, you know, she looks great in everything she wears. I know. It doesn't, doesn't matter what it is. It's, it's like, it's a creepy statement, but I 100% agree. <laughs> <laughs> I, don't, I don't even mean that in a sleaze. I, I mean that in a purely objective way is that I, I, I feel like she's, it's clear that she got her start in modeling because she, uh. She, it's it's like clothes that are, are designed for her. Well, she, and she, for her she figure. clearly cares. I guess that's you know? creepy. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it's so true. I mean, again, she she's the she is manic pixie dream girl, and it would be so annoying if she wasn't so goddamn perfect in in every single way. <laughs> like she she definitely you know the fact that I think and and I can't imagine that this was Godard, but the the all of the attention that she pays to clothing is is important and it is iconic and it makes her her character stand out so much more because Godard doesn't always give her that much to do i mean especially in a woman as a woman she's this flat prostitute slash uh you know desperate for a baby she's literally the madonna horror complex (laughs) you know and that's about it that's about the only um character development we get and yet she comes across as just such a charming and and just you know like you you want her to get that baby and you know you want her to make up with emile and you also want to see her make out with belmondo because like yeah like (laughs) they're all just so good looking (laughs) I kind of thought that that maybe this movie was a response to the increased sexual liberation of of women uh, that was happening at the time. 
Like at first when she gets her, her ovulation kit, you think it's a birth control packet and that she's, that this is, oh, this is the movie where she's got two boyfriends, two guys that she's sleeping with. So this is going to be a like... It's, it's her paint your wagon. <laughs> But it's not at all. It's, it's so tame. It's actually kind of puritanical, this movie. And I think in a way, Godard is kind of puritanical. Oh, he 100% is. That's the thing about him is that when he, he makes these movies that are, they tout self-awareness so that when you find his blind spots, they're so glaring because he's not being self-aware about those. And you can definitely see it in this one. You see it in all of his movies, but... He, he is definitely, at the end of the day, pretty puritanical. And I think actually the, the next movie, uh, which I'm not, I can't, I'm, I apologize to the entire country of France. Uh, I cannot pronounce anything of yours, but Vivre Sa Vie. Vivre Sa Vie. Yeah, that's good. There you go. Uh, is, I, I thought was painfully puritanical, but I'll let you set it up. It's a story of a of a prostitute. It's uh, in in uh, in twelve tableaus. It's uh, Anna Karina plays Nana, who has uh, recently moved to Paris, and because she wants to make it as an actress, and is uh, having trouble paying the rent because she's just not getting enough acting jobs. Uh, her her one small role in an Eddie Constantine film uh, didn't didn't pay that much, I guess. You know, she's kicked out of her apartment and uh, you know, has to rely on the on the kindness of strangers uh, for a bit and then realizes that she uh, that if she just, uh, you know, had had people pay her for sex, then she'd be able to to pay her rent. Uh, so she becomes a prostitute and becomes the uh, the property of uh, of a pimp. Yeah, this this was a, this is a weird one, actually, for Godard. I actually hadn't seen this one. So this was my first time watching it. And I liked it a lot more than I expected to like it, even though there's definitely aspects of it that annoyed me. But it kind of felt like Godard doing Bresson, remaking Knights of Kyberia, and yet five years earlier than Belle de Jour. <laughs> it definitely is. It's his bid for... It's it's serious cinema. Like, it's it's the first one of his movies where you feel like he's really trying to be up there with the with the Brissons and the and the Bergmans and and all the all the all the heavy hitters, all the all the directors who make really heavy movies. Right. Um, there's there's a bit of playfulness in this, but but it's yeah, it's pretty much just a downward spiral movie. Well, but it, his playfulness is his sort of that same shittiness that that desire to undercut everything that he's doing and that he's doing in tribute, uh, which is what I liked about this a lot. The, the whole thing feels very voyeuristic, and yet at the same time, there's so many shots of negative space of people's backs instead of their faces. The camera focuses so often on these sort of strange angles that when it finally does focus on a face, it really hits you pretty strongly, which is excellent. I feel like in a serious context like this, some of the experiments don't work so well. The the entire scene that was shot with two people sitting at the bar and they're having a conversation and you and you never see their face. I mean, that's if you can sort of laugh it off as a, oh Godard, you're you're um, you're such a provocateur. Isn't that isn't that amusing? 
that would be one thing. But this is actually like the movie has a, a very serious subject and and a tragic end, and it's it's meant to be you know very austere, like a Brisson or or, or Bergman movie. So these like these nutty nutty camera movements uh, don't work as well for me. It's funny though because you know I like he is trying so hard to be dead serious cinema while doing that, but then the plot of this to me was so. You know, it's a movie about... Anna Karina was 22 when she was doing this, and it's 100% a movie about being 22. (laughs) It's being trapped between childhood and adulthood, where you have those moments of bright enlightenment and, you know, strong life conclusions, but you don't really get there in the end because she makes all of these dumb decisions in the moment that only, as you say, you know, is starts her slow descent downward until she then gets essentially punished by uh, Godard, <laughs> by God for uh, having uh, turned into a prostitute and, and sort of following, you know, not, not thinking everything totally through. Yeah, I, uh, Godard has, has turned her into a prostitute uh, for this movie, but, but I feel like he's, uh, he's less her pimp and more just one of her clients. She's sort of there to do his bidding. Anything that that he pays her to do, she'll have to do on screen. She's this uh, fantasy female that that he's paying to play out his fantasies on screen. So I think the way this movie really does resonate is that it's contrasting the figure that Karina's playing on screen and and the figure that she plays in Godard's real life and how there's there's very little difference between Nana and Anna, and which is an, uh, an anagram, isn't it? I just noticed that. I'm just noticing everything you're saying. This is wild. This is some meta shit. But it's so true, you know, because the one thing I didn't really understand about this is why even bother focusing on prostitution, uh, you know, when, when he could have just focused on her sexuality, you know, as, as if, uh, you know, a woman who has sex with more than one man is automatically must turn into a prostitute in Godard's world, which I, I know is, you know, in the context of the times, it was already a, a little scandalous to be upfront about anyhow. So maybe this was the only way to talk about it. But I actually think what you just said <laughs> about her essentially being paid to do everything for him anyhow is maybe part of why he continually gravitates towards this topic other than you know i guess his fascination there is a lot about french laws of prostitution Mm -hmm. in this movie which are clearly a fascination for him and also sort of just strange i don't know it's it's a very good art tangent you know we're in the middle of this movie he essentially cracks open a you know, some sort of law book and starts reading off the page. Yeah, I mean, it turns into a documentary. He's showing the nuts and bolts of how prostitution works and reading reading the laws that, that correspond and what, you know, how how French society allows this transaction to happen. And it, it's very cold and analytical. And it uh, that documentary instinct is part of the whole French new wave that, the, you know, they're, they're taking these cameras to the streets and they're, they're trying to capture life as it is, maybe not in reality, but using reality to inform the lives that they're putting on the screen. I, you know, what's kind of interesting about that, though, is that he, you know, he spends the whole movie building up this, these shades of gray and humanizing prostitution and, and you know, bringing in... Um, to the the best that he sort of can, which sometimes isn't saying that much, but bringing in the humanity to uh, the historian situation. And then he ends it with this very moralistic punishment of her being shot by essentially a stray bullet 
and then just left to die in the street, <laughs> which, uh, like, I don't, I don't know. It felt to me like, I, I don't know if he was trying to make a statement about society, but it came across way more like a statement about him. And, and if we were the types of people to draw an analogy to his own relationship with Anna Karina, who he, of course, was married to at this point, do you know, do you know much about, uh, about their personal history? Yeah. So what's kind of interesting, you know, and this is part of her sad story here, is that they got married pretty early on because she got pregnant. And they, they got married and then she lost the child. And so this is only a couple years after that. And then on top of it, basically, she was a, a victim of, I mean, Godard being a sort of uncaring and self-important person, <laughs> quite frankly. But also the fact that being a woman in the 60s just sucked. You know, it's just awful. Because what would happen was, uh, and according to her, and very recently, um, she had done a tour a couple maybe last year or the year before I know that she was in New York and I missed it because it was this sort of exclusive event and I was not exclusive enough to go, but um, she has been giving a bunch of uh, recent interviews and there was one that was with the guardian that I read where she basically says that, you know, he would just, he'd say, Hey, I'm going to go get cigarettes and then just disappear for a week. Like, he would go get cigarettes and then go to America and hang out with, like, William Faulkner or somebody. and, and Or, you know, Ingmar Bergman. And then just leave her sitting around the apartment with no food. And because it was the 60s, women literally couldn't do anything. And, and he also, because she was so young when they got married, uh, she actually had to even call her mother, who she didn't have a relationship with, to then sign the papers so that they could get married. But also what was happening there legally... Uh, you know, at the time is that she got signed over to Godard. So he had to now do everything for her because women aren't people. And, you know, stuff like she couldn't she couldn't buy food because she didn't have a checkbook. She didn't have any money. And if he disappeared, she just had nothing to do. She was just stuck. And so she started going crazy on top of, I think, you know, losing the, the baby, probably him being impossible, her being very young anyhow, and, uh, you know, not having much else besides him to, to focus all of her time and energy on. She actually uh, was committed to an institution having a mental breakdown, which was scary for her, she said, because, in, you know, this was a time where you would just be committed and that was it. And so she ended up having a, a psychiatrist, I believe, you know, help her get through this so that she could be released which was probably also something that Godard had to sign for quite frankly or maybe he even signed her in I know that that was what typically used to happen um but uh basically after she got out of the institution he threw uh the next movie at her which is a, a band apart a band of outsiders <laughs> you do not like very much no i don't understand this movie i this is a movie i i've never understood the appeal of there's brief moments of dancing and and running that are very charming but i just find that movie to be such a drag so i would love to hear 
Number one, what you think this movie is really about, and number two, why you like it. Well, none of his movies are about anything, really. They're just a a, a place for him to to share his uh, whatever whatever passing thoughts he he has about anything, about artists, about about uh, poets, about uh, about life, about politics, about the Algerian War, about anything. Um, so it's you know I think he Godard will just uh, say okay I want to make a uh, a heist movie and so he 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 makes a heist movie in the the most you know un heist movie like way is you've got these two hoodlums who uh, who meet up with uh, the the very innocent Odile played by Anna Karina in uh, English class they're they're learning how to speak English and uh, and she's living. Um, she's the caretaker at a at a wealthy person's house, and she mentions to them that that there's a bunch of money lying around. So they they form a plot to steal the the money, and uh, and that's about it. But it's you know the inspiration for the movie is is definitely uh, Godard's fascination with with American B movies. Well, the the two guys, uh, Franz and Arthur, are definitely cinephiles, and they spend a lot of time quoting and reenacting scenes from movies. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean they have they have some playful moments like when they uh, when they reenact the death of Billy the Kid um, that are that are kind of charming. But but I think part of the problem with this movie is is the two of them, Franz and Arthur, are not very interesting to watch. There's nothing too engaging about them, and even Anna Karina doesn't get to be terribly playful in this. She she has a worried expression on her face for most of the movie, and is is just just this sort of innocent virgin brand new to 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 parisian life and uh you know they're they're sort of teaching her they're they're corrupting her and uh, and we just sort of um watch her 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 uh, worried reaction to everything that they're having her do but and yet she's fascinated by these bad boys and wants to be a part of their world i think this is the godard movie where he said all you need to make a movie is a girl and a gun <laughs> and that's kind of not really all you need to make a movie turns out. Yeah, I uh, I mean, I think this movie holds together a lot better than Le Petit Soldat. It doesn't seem nearly as cheap. It doesn't seem like it was Godard just shot a bunch of stuff and then put a story together in the, in the editing room, added some narration. It seems like he actually you know, had a bunch of set pieces in mind for this movie. I, I think the robbery itself is is incredible. It's so chaotic and brutal and... You know, just you know, they go to the house to rob it, but uh, they can't get into the room. So they come back the next day to rob it again, and then the woman who owns the house is there, and they lock her in a closet. And it's, I mean, it's just one ridiculous thing after another. But it's so brutal that it's it's got this. Uh, you're sort of laughing and wincing at the same time. And I think I think once it gets the last third of this movie is definitely Godard in uh, in full force. But maybe the movie had lost you already at that point, so you just didn't care. I mean, I just, I think it, it, it is the, like you said, the, the characters are just, they're so underbaked and they don't get a chance to, to shine nearly as much as they typically do in his movies. Or maybe it's just the acting, you know, like maybe I just didn't, I don't even know the name of these actors. I don't care. They didn't, I didn't recognize them. Claude Brasser and Sammy Frey. I mean, I love the scene that I like, uh, which is sort of predictable, you know, on the tale of me saying how much I like a woman as a woman is I like the scene where they have this chore- choreographed dance that they do in a bar 
for like five minutes. <laughs> <laughs> they dance the Madison. And I didn't realize how badly they do it. Yeah. <laughs> In my memory, they they just sort of break into this perfect choreographed dance, but they're they're really not very good at it. Well, Anna Karina said in an interview that, that they spent a long time practicing that and pretty much the rest of the movie was ad lib, which is kind of funny because I agree it was not that well done and, and the two guys kind of drop out halfway through anyhow and she keeps it going. But uh, the, the fact that a lot of this was ad lib makes a lot of sense because I think if you don't have, I mean, the reason why comedians who do improv become so wildly you know, popular if they can both act and improvise is because it's hard. It's it's not an easy skill to have. And you certainly, it certainly doesn't come naturally. You have to learn a lot of that and then also have talent on top of it. And this definitely is not the the improv crew, I don't think. No, I mean, he gives, he doesn't give any of his characters any internal life. So there, you have to sort of count on the, the actors themselves to, to bring something to the role, to make them interesting. And uh, I think... Maybe with familiarity, these actors might, uh, you know, could potentially endear themselves to me. I know that, like, there's this one one actor, Laszlo Zabo, who's in just about every one of these Karina movies um, who, and has, you know, a minor role in all of them. And I didn't even notice him really until the final one that we watched, Made in USA. And I thought he was really charming in that. And he's really not doing anything any different than he's done in any of the movies. And I went back and, and watched some clips of him in some other movies. And I realized that um, you, you, you have to fall in love with Godard's characters a little bit. You have to, you have to get to know the actors and their careers. Like I, th- I think that, that Godard is always working in such a metatextual way that it's, he wants you to latch onto the actors rather than the characters that he's created. And I think that's part of the problem with the lead, two leads in Band Apart. We don't know these guys. I, I don't know them from any other movies, but uh, perhaps if I did, I would say, oh, they're, you know, watch, watch them goof around in this movie. They're, they're, so, they're so entertaining. I mean, I like the fake death and then the real death, which is, ends up mirroring the fake death. Of that. Was it Franz who gets shot? No, it's Arthur. I, I, oh, okay. Yeah. see they're they're both the same guy that's the problem i don't know i mean like i agree with you i think that it is about you know establishing these characters they they do once you start to recognize them throughout it's that sort of ensemble cast type thing which you know happens continually in comedy for sure and also certain directors who always work with the same people and it's it does become fun to recognize and see where they're, they're going with it but I mean, the guy, the, the actor has to be good to begin with. I don't know. I just wasn't, I just, I found this movie to be very bland. I also find it very interesting that Quentin Tarantino seemed to love this so much. He named his production company after him. Well, it, it makes sense because it's a crime movie, but it's also just a goof, which I think sums up Tarantino's career pretty well. But Alphaville, uh, I really enjoyed I don't love Alphaville, and I and I think part of it is that Eddie Constantine, Lemmy Caution, the guy who plays the uh, Private Eye, the what is he? The I guess he's a Private Eye from the Outlands. He's come to futuristic Paris, which is called Alphaville, to uh, defeat the uh, the big 
brotherish type computer that's removed uh, any emotion, uh, anything not logical from uh, from human society. Uh, he he comes to to Alphaville to try and uh, defeat the computer, I guess. Yeah, Alphaville's like a meaner Vulcan. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I will just say that there's this voice that talks throughout that narrates partially this movie. But it's this weird gravelly, like, like I don't even know if I could do it. But it reminded me, actually, of, of Leia in, in Star Wars. Oh, yeah. When she's dressed up. And I, I was like, oh, that must be where Lucas got that from. It reminded me of when uh, kids try and burp the alphabet. That's what it <laughs> Yeah. That's basically it, yeah. It's somewhere between the... the yeah, it's like, a compu- it's like an electronic computer voice, but sort of... Like, I don't know. I could do it, but I, I think it might turn off all of our listeners. Um, yeah, I, I like Alphaville because this is so, it's so different from his other movies, and yet it's so 100% his movie. It, you know, it's just, it, it's, a, it's fun, and it's stylish, and it's bizarre, and it's also strangely romantic. It's strangely sweet and endearing, especially by the end, which is something that I found really interesting because I find that Godard tends to undercut that whenever he does it. Because he has plenty of romance movies, but, you know, they always end in death and destruction. And this one actually sort of has a... I mean, it it does end in death and destruction in the sense that Alphaville gets uh, destroyed. (laughs) But then the two main characters at least, you know, drive away in a, a sort of happier ending, which was kind of interesting. But I didn't... Love is the key to this movie. It's what uh, it's what destroys Alphaville. It's the it's the the irrational emotion that um, <clears throat> that the computer can't handle and 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 self destructs. But I never feel any love in this movie, and I think that's my problem with it. I think it's got a lot of great ideas, but it's Godard wasn't the right person necessarily to to tackle this subject where you want to actually feel something because you don't you don't feel emotions. You, you don't you know you, Godard's movies aren't uh, you know they don't engage you in the story. They don't engage you. The characters don't engage you in the way that characters are supposed to in movies. You're not identifying with them and and following their adventures and feeling what they feel and, um, you know, being sad when they're sad and being sad when they don't get what they want. You're, you watch everything at a distance and he's got, I mean, this is an amazing looking movie and it's got incredible ideas and, and it's, it's, I, I have a huge appreciation for it, but it needs, you need to feel the love in it. And I just don't. It's definitely more of a, a computer love kind of love. It's not, you know, it certainly is not a mo- like you will not cry or feel like you're so happy that uh, Lemmy Caution, who's about like three times as old as Anna Karina, run away together. <laughs> <laughs> but they do have very huge eyes. Everyone has big eyes in this movie. Maybe that was part of what I liked. Um, yeah, no, I think what what really gripped me in this, and actually in a way I guess overwrites the well, everything that you're saying, which is completely valid. <laughs> But for me, what gets, it, it, you know, the the moments of choreographed movement and the negative space in this movie, I just love. I love how there are certain scenes that are set up where, you know, one person's half off the screen and one person's framed perfectly. And when that person talks and then she stops, you know, when Anna's talking and then she turns her head and then Lemmy turns his head and now he's framed and he starts talking and they both they both move in sync like machinery. Mm-hmm. Uh, I thought was just amazing. I love that he uses only film equipment to make things seem futuristic, which is hilarious. 
He just, you know, things like, you know, all right, where's that Fresnel light? Let's put that in here and that'll be the interrogation device. Or let's just move three microphones in and out mechanically from this scene. And it, it works. It becomes really effective. You do feel like he's being uh, interrogated. And it's this perfect sort of low budget sci-fi kind of gem. I, You know, especially I mean, maybe part of it is just that it's so refreshing to see someone really creatively make an effort to have a movie feel like it's in the future without doing any, having zero budget for special effects, basically. He just sort of picks a lot of glass buildings, you know, focusing on things that are like hyper modern looking in the 60s or very trendy kind of 60s futurism stuff driving a ford galaxy right (laughs) just this sort of you know but by by focusing on that stuff it works it's so you know it really you know and part of it maybe is just the fact that this is a black and white movie so that you he can do a lot with shadows and he can keep whatever he wants in the light and everything that that he doesn't want seen out of the picture maybe is a a big help he pulls out some incredible lighting tricks in this and yeah i think that's i mean that's how the you know the hollywood b film noirs happened is you know there there are these dark movies that hid their budgets in 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 deep shadows and i think uh godard does that really well in in alphaville it's uh it's his most noir movie it's a really and it's also very it's a it's a straight, I mean, for, for Godard, it's really a, there is a, it is a sci-fi movie. It's a noir sci-fi. He doesn't try and undercut this movie. He has moments of that for sure. You know, the ending of this is bizarre and there's a lot of this sort of, we are going to grab you once you double over and you're waiting for him to get punched. And then Anna Karina tells like a five minute long joke <laughs> and then he doubles over from laughter and then they grab him. You know, like that's such a, you know, he's totally undercutting himself by doing that, but it was fun and really charming and great. But yeah, I don't know. There's something about the way that this whole thing moves. It it, it, it reminded me almost of like a Robert Wilson dance performance which is you know the definition of pretentious <laughs> but the the thing about stuff like that for me at least is when once you're in it if you see clips of say like einstein on the beach or something i don't know how familiar you are with like <laughs> experimental opera this is me outing myself as a pretentious piece of shit but well i i'm i know who he is and and i just is sort of like a, a uh you know, I I know his his name is used to describe really pretentious theater and and dance, but in, in it's sort yeah. of the same way that Jean Luc Godard is uh, it represents pretentious cinema for a lot of people. Um, the thing but, about him, though, and I think, and maybe this is about Godard too, and in a lot of uh, a lot of quote pretentious art, which isn't to say that it's not pretentious half the time because it totally is. But when you're when you watch a clip of it, it's not the same as when you've immersed and spending hours in it and accept it as long as you accept the facts of well this this planet is just like this then it becomes really enjoyable and fun and strange and you sort of pick up on these rhythms of life that do exist but we don't uh, you know typically focus on and i like sort of that finding humanity and 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 picking out um or maybe vice versa. It's maybe it's finding programmed things that we do on a day-to-day basis and, and highlighting those as opposed to the more human aspects of what we do. Because we all are programmed largely to, to move and interact in certain ways uh, by society, which is, which is intriguing then to, 
I don't, I don't know. I'm trying to think of a way to describe it. I, like, I, this is going to sound dopey, but, you know, like, the, that's The Sims, where you have, like, levels of, of things that you can turn on and off. Like, that's what this reminded me of. It's like, if you tune down the humanity but still wanted to shoot a love story, what would it look like? It's almost like a computer writing a movie without, but still missing, like, a really key aspect of what makes a human a human. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, that's, um, that's a good point. And I think that a lot of the, um, that Godardian style of acting or, or blocking more, I should say, really started in this movie where characters are, are standing, you know, perpendicular to each other, not looking at each other. It's, and, uh, it's a very, very theatrical way of, of acting. And I think maybe he, uh, he liked it so much in this movie where he's trying to have uh, you know, humans act like robots that he sort of uh, he, he, he kept that technique going for, you know, for a while after this. And, and you know, other other filmmakers have really picked up on on that acting style. Fassbinder, for sure, has does a lot of Godardian type blocking and Hal Hartley and, and even Wes Anderson. Uh, I, I think uh, the the artificiality is something that they they all have been drawn to in in Godard and and a lot of that started in this movie. Oh yeah, big time. I also want to give another shout out to her sweet fur coats in this movie. <laughs> and also, I think she must be wearing what was there in the '60s. Women would wear these like partial wigs, like but a it, weave, that sort of thing. Or the well, where that's the, what we would call it ex- now. But it's like yeah, it's like this sort of partial. I think she's wearing that because her hair is so full in this movie and. It, her hair in, in real life did not seem that way in other movies, especially. It also helps to make her look more mechanical in a way that she's sort of perfectly, I don't know, her hair is just so symmetrical. <laughs> uh, a fembot. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I was actually a little disappointed with uh, with how little Karina had to do in this movie. I think it's the the first of of their collaborations where Godard really didn't have didn't what wasn't able to to bring out her charms at all. But yeah, I, he he kind of holds her back here, which isn't the case with Pierrot LeFou. Oh we oui, Pierrot LeFou, which uh, we both love. So now we're in 65, and this to me is where Godard really comes in on his own. Like I know that the, like he he's he's already been established in style for a long time, but this is his most to me it's always been his most coherent film. Which is maybe sort of funny because reading uh, other people's reviews, especially on Letterboxd, everyone sort of says what what you've been saying throughout, which I think is is the truth for a lot of Godard movies, is that, you know, there there's no point. It's just a bunch of things that are stringed together and, and like there's these moments of, of point, but there's no overall point. But this movie, I feel like, has an overall point and it has an actual plot and it has actual characters it's based on a novel, so I think that's where maybe some of the, the where the bare bones of a plot and and some of the thematic concerns come from. And I I agree with you. I feel like this is one of the few Godard movies where you can say this movie is about something. <laughs> so Jenna, what is this movie about? It's a movie about 
the intellect versus the emotion. I mean, it's about this sort of action versus intellect, the conceptual versus reality, instinct versus societal rules and, and romance versus practicality. And I think it's a, a portrait and a study of human impulses and the consequences of them. And also the fact that whether you follow life, you know, through impulse and through action or you follow it intellectually, you always end up at this same point of, of inaction. <laughs> and that life is, is about long periods of boredom, you know, like, like the, that, that any moments where action is happening is, is really the exception and not the rule. And so you have uh, Ferdinand who's in a, a marriage that he seems bored with and he runs into this old girlfriend who is a, you know, a babysitter slash mistress for a friend of his. <laughs> and she's, she has a similar, you know, disenchantment with life and they, they go off on this crazy road trip and they're also killing people. and She's killing people. He's, uh, he's, he, he doesn't quite have the, the gumption to, to pull the trigger ever. He's an intellectual. He's a, you know, he's a man of words. Yeah, and they, and they start this, you know, this sort of opposites tracked affair that leads them on the run and then, of course, inevitably burns out like most love affairs do. And I think that the whole story of, of that, of the affair, of the, of the plot at least, is that basically the highs in our life and the moments of action and the moments of intellectual profundity you know i don't know like they sort of these these moments aha moments of our life are, are basically like affairs they're akin to affairs like the relationship between ferdinand and marianne you know as, as much as we try to run from life uh, whether it's through art or action or poetry or romance inevitably we end up at square one and then you die and probably like ferdinand yelling ah shit <laughs> <laughs> And I, and I think that message is super universal, which is another thing that makes this movie so wonderful, is that instead of this being, you know, one man's one man against the world and that one man being Godard, it's it's something that everyone can experience, especially both male and female. And Anna Karina gets to shine. I mean, it makes me wonder now knowing all of these facts of her life and knowing how frustrated she was and having these issues outside of the screen and having these issues with her marriage and knowing that she was a close collaborator with Godard, if part of this, the, the point of this movie existing was her saying, give me something to do. Like, this is, I want to do something. <laughs> I want to get out and live. Weren't they divorced at this time, too? I, I believe they were, but uh, you'd never guess because it is sort of the, the movie where, where Godard really allows her to, to do her thing. Like, any whim of hers, he's, he's willing to follow. And uh, and she gets a, a a musical number again. So it's, it's always nice when uh, when there's a little singing and dancing in a in a Godard film. Malina chance, Malina chance. Whenever I watch this movie, I I can never get that song out of my head. But I mean, I think there are some universal themes here, and I but I think some of them are just on a basic level of Godard trying to describe his life with Anna Karina and just how it is for men and women, how they'll how they can never really get along. They can have these moments that are wonderful. And I feel like 
Ferdinand and Marianne taking off in the car is uh, sort of the uh, like the you know maybe Godard's courtship period with Anna and uh, and when they when they get to the island and have to sort of live like uh, like Swiss Family Robinson or something for a while with the with the animals uh, just live in nature they're uh, they're enjoying themselves but uh, but uh, Marianne gets bored very quickly and I and I feel like uh, Godard is is also describing uh, his, his relationship with Anna at this point. I think yeah his I think his quote for describing I think there's there's two great quotes in this movie that you know describe that are I probably you know describe both of their sides hers being that quote about you know I I look at you you speak to me in words and and I look at you with emotion and how that just you know that that disconnect and that miscommunication and then I feel like his quote to her is that line about it's a good thing I don't like spinach because if I did I'd eat it and I can't stand the stuff it's the same with you, only the other way around. <laughs> wow, that's just his wordplay. Because that's really meaningless, right? That's Godard is full of those, just these things that sound good but really don't mean anything. Well, you know, I think it's this sort of, it, it's, that is a sort of hate love, you know? It's like that, like, I, I need you and I can't stand you. Can't live with them. Yeah, women. Can't live without them. <laughs> uh, <laughs> But I think that's why it's so easy to connect to this movie. Maybe is because there's there's such a, a autobiographical streak through it, or um, you know, it's, it's it's the story of their of their marriage as much as anything, and uh, and the colors. Oh my God, the colors in this movie are so amazing. <laughs> they are so good. They're iconic. Just like there's no other word for it. The reds and the blues in this movie are so vivid, and they're so strikingly beautiful. And, and I love the final scene. I love him painting his face blue. To, it's like, it, it's so, again, it, it comes back to that sort of that, you know, this high art pretentiousness, but it, it, it's so, it makes so much sense. You know, this guy who, who's trying so desperately to express himself and he can't figure out how to do it. And the only way in the end for him to express himself is by literally painting himself blue, like Picasso's blue period or something, but he has to put it literally on his face and then strap a bomb to his neck because it's like the only way he's like, I don't know how else to, to get these emotions across. And then, of course, after he lights it, he goes, well, I actually, I, I could have said this a better way. <laughs> <laughs> I also, I think what, when, there's a couple of uh, small trivia moments in this movie that I, I always found fascinating. The, the scene in the beginning, she has a song where um, when they first run away and they're in bed together, and I don't remember that song as much as the Petite Ligne de Chance song, but she's basically walking around the apartment and she's just singing, uh, which is semi-narrating their, their predicament, but also just kind of a little love song. But what's interesting about that is apparently in the other room of this apartment, they just had someone playing piano. <laughs> and so mm -hmm. it was live music and she just had to sing to accompany it, which I'm sure angered any sound man who or woman who listens to it today but i i find it kind of interesting that he he didn't have any other he, i don't know or he he thought that that was realer to have because you can hear it kind of dip in and out as she moves to different rooms and as as the cameraman gets further away from the source of the the piano playing it's kind of funny did she uh did he write down the lyrics for her ahead of time or did she have to make them up uh, that i don't know but i it wouldn't gonna... surprise me if she had to just make it up as she was going I mean, I think Godard never really scripted his films. He would he would have kind of a, a place to start and and possibly a, a plot outline. And I think uh, in general he would he would just kind of write it as as he goes. So uh, he you know he had, he would hand his actors their lines like right right before shooting, 
and so I, it's it's often hard to tell what is actually improvised and what's just um, Godard making something up on the spot and having his actors say it. Also, I, I have um, I gotta say that my one beef with this movie is when which I, is is all at once racist and funny, but the um, the scene where they're making fun of Americans in the Vietnam War, but I think that's pretty rich coming from France. <laughs> mm-hmm. I'm like, come on, guys, you you can't sit here and make fun of us about Vietnam. You started it. I well, kind of making fun of the American attitude. They'll like, you know, swoop in and 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 solve solve all the problems over there in the in Vietnam. I think that 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 was the the American can do attitude he was making fun of. Yeah. More than anything. <laughs> yeah, baby. I don't know. I find I just I I find this movie to be pretty brilliant it's it's long but it it when it meanders it feels like the characters are, are actually evolving when it happens and maybe that's another issue i have with some of his earlier movies is that you don't really see much of a a to b you kind of see one character have already an opinion and by the end of the movie it just gets stronger <laughs> you know or or he's continually talking about it louder or something whereas this one there there is some evolution even if the the evolution is people just continually trying and failing yeah i i think that's true um so godard peaks with piero lefou we both agree this movie sums up everything about his and Anna's relationship and everything he ever tried to do in movies using her as a muse. Uh, and it, it seems like it would be a perfect swan song for their relationship in movies. But uh, somewhat unfortunately, he brings her back for one more feature film, and that's Made in USA. And it's a uh, not terribly interesting, hard-boiled detective story. That the the one interesting part is that Anna Karina is cast as the hard-boiled detective, and an old boyfriend of hers is missing and said to be dead. And she spends the movie asking all sorts of different people what happened to him. And uh, at no point does the audience ever have any clue what has actually happened to this old boyfriend of hers or, or what he was after or why he was killed or, 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 or what any of the, the plot really adds up to. The colors are great. Though. The colors are great. <laughs> colors are still really good here. And yeah, I mean, there are a lot of great visuals in this movie. But I don't think he had a whole lot more on his mind than uh, these visual set pieces that he's he's so good at. Like I think when they're in the in, at the movie studio with the, in the props room with all the posters and they're these, the posters are moving behind Anna Karina. She's she's walking through the studio. It's um, one of the coolest looking things he's ever shot. It says everything there is to say about Godard with the colors and and just watching Anna Karina walk across the screen for five minutes and uh, you know and just have the frame filled from edge to edge with with movie memorabilia and and uh, and movie quotes okay I think I think that 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 one shot in particular sums up uh, sums up Godard's aesthetic better than than any any anything else in any of his movies yeah I mean watching it this time around I 
kind of felt like I maybe understood it a bit better than the first time I watched it. I think the first time I watched it, I felt just sort of baffled by it. Besides some a couple of moments I thought were intriguing, things like uh, the censorship of her, her old boyfriend's name, which of course Tarantino stole for Kill Bill, was fun and, and just strange. And I was, I was down for it. it. It added to that sense of mystery where there really is not much mystery, quite frankly. This time around, though, I kind of got the sense that this was the whole movie was meant to be just bitingly sarcastic, perhaps. And that doesn't always work for me if it's not actually funny. You know what I mean? Like, I don't know. I I, I couldn't like I, this time around. I almost felt like the whole movie was a dry comedy and I just was not in on the joke, you know, down to the name of this movie made in the USA. I mean, I, I you know, I'm I have no problem with foreigners criticizing my country but you know it's like i didn't like what are you criticizing? <laughs> it's like i don't know i just couldn't understand what what was so usa about this it didn't feel like it was a takeoff on anything other than you know humphrey bogart perhaps and even then uh, i think humphrey bogart was well loved by godard seemingly in this film so i just didn't really understand why why we're all here and, and why we were doing this and why Marianne Faithful is singing her song that she was famous for and, you know, just hanging out. There's a ton of wordplay in this that just is Too really much. nonsensical. Yeah, that one scene in the in the bar where it's the uh, the, the handyman is uh, just saying one ridiculous sentence after, like, completely nonsensical sentence after another is endless. I mean, I love goofy <laughs> wordplay, you know, more than anybody I know, but this is just... I have no idea what what Godard was trying to get at with with uh, dragging that scene on for so long. Uh, this this movie was supposed to be was it supposed to be set in the United States? I mean, they're in Atlantic City, right? They say Atlantic City, but then they, uh, it it I don't know if this was also meant to be sort of the future or something because there were also I'm trying to remember now, but there were other. I mean, number one it looks nothing like it. <laughs> and let me tell you, I've been to Atlantic City. That place is not anything like this, but. I don't know. Like there was, I, I believe that they say something about other other cities that that sound more French, or they don't sound like it's meant to be actually New Jersey. So that's why I wasn't too sure. Or if that this was like Alphaville. Now this city was called the Atlantic City, but they say Atlantic um, City in English, so it's sort of strange. Well, and all the posters on the wall are in French, and you know clearly, right. clearly he's not trying to make you believe that you're actually in the United States, but. But the place names were American place names in general, and it's based on uh, a uh, a Donald Westlake novel, right? The same. Is it? See this? Yeah. I this is. Tell me more. <laughs> oh, I don't know a whole lot. Um, I just know that he's. Um, I think she's actually playing the same character that that Lee Marvin is playing in Point Blank, and I think I think Jason Statham did a uh, did a recent Parker movie where he's playing the same. Donald Westlake character, so it's she's she's playing a, a a famous detective or tough guy, I guess. So maybe that's why he felt compelled to at least pretend that he was he's making this movie in America. I almost wonder if I mean this was the last full length film that that Karina and Godard could stand each other uh, to collaborate on, and I, I partially wonder if maybe he let the ball drop on this because he was just unhappy with her. <laughs> like, you know, 
that's I'm this is wild uh you know um speculation yeah speculation gossip but uh I don't know like I wouldn't put it past him quite frankly because it, there's just so much that could have been so much fun in this that just isn't and then there are moments that are actually pretty funny you know but they're sort of at her expense in some ways like I the the scene where um your guy uh, Zabo uh, who who plays what he's like meant to be the a corrupt cop I believe or a gangster or you know it's there's the the lines are blurry I think intentionally blurry uh, but he's well he's he's telling her you know oh the the key it's you know it's in the room and then they start playing this like game of hot and cold and she's walking that does like a complete three sixty from him playing a pinball machine and her walking and him saying cold colder freezing you know ice age and then coming back around to warm getting warmer burning hot burning up and the keys in his pocket mm-hmm. you know like that was nonsensical but it was uh it was funny and it was it's ridiculous and in, in like a, a fun way and then you even she even does that loop again with um oh with uh leod's death jean-pierre leod when he dies yeah yeah that's pretty fun too i enjoyed his uh his death scene jean-pierre leod of course the uh the star of truffaut's 400 blows the uh the first big new wave film and then but then he sort of and then became godard's boy i think he was assistant director for a bunch of uh, godard's films and has like these tiny cameos in a lot of his movies he's the uh the bellboy in alphaville right and you see the top of his head in in uh in piero lefou and actually has a couple of lines of dialogue in this movie for a change he's a main character in masculine feminine which mm-hmm. came out what this year actually 66 the same year yeah i know and then there's the writer character who is just seems to be like a caricature of of the pretentious writer who uh you know sort of is so distracted by his writing he, he can't doesn't actually experience life i liked at the end the, you know he comes over and he shoots a guy to save anna karina and he says thanks now i can finish my novel then now that i've had this experience i can finish my novel and then she shoots him so alas Mm-hmm. plight of artists yeah he's kind of a stand-in for godard i'm not sure what that means having her kill him at the end but uh maybe maybe that's saying something when she kills the pretentious writer at the end you know so just looking i i, I decided here to, to just look at the wiki page real quick for this movie to see if there was like you know some some special thing that i'm missing about this movie and there's a great quote here from a.o scott the the film critic where he says, quote, far from a lost masterpiece, it's nonetheless bright and jagged piece of the jigsaw puzzle of Godard's career, which I think is actually kind of, yeah, about like all you can say really about this. I, I don't know. It, it is sort of, it, it, it's just lacking. It's, I think what, a big thing that was happening with this movie is that Godard had become completely disenchanted with, with trying to tell a story at all. Like he's, you know, as his... I mean, he never was was really, he was never very good at telling a story, but he always paid lip service to it. There's always some sort of plot that you could, you know, if you wanted to say what the movie was about, you could up until this point. And I think, I think he just, I think he went into this movie and possibly just gave up partway through realizing he just wasn't interested in telling stories anymore. That's, that's what it feels like to me. And I, I kind of get this sense, even though I feel like this is a this would have been a really cool part for Anna Karina to have really owned. I get the sense that she didn't really want to be there either. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she doesn't put a whole lot into it, and whether that's her fault or his fault or 
It's definitely not the clothes' fault. She's got great clothes in this movie, as always. Oh yeah, there's a great like orange and, and yellow dress that's juxtaposed by like a cool garden scene. Um, so probably the less said about this movie, the better. Why don't we Why don't we move on to the the the, the, the final little coda, the oldest profession anthology film that Godard brought Anna Karina back for a, for one of the stories in. the whole thing yeah so this this is weird too i mean so this is this is really the last thing that they ever worked on but it's a short film and this movie was uh yeah a french anthology movie called the oldest profession came out in 67 and it's basic it's just about prostitution you know several short films on prostitution with some big name Direct, at least some directors that I recognize. It basically starts off in the prehistoric era where men and women frolicked in, you know, like fur bikinis, <laughs> as the 60s uh, very much strongly believed. Uh, and then, you know, basically the evolution of how prostitution works and how it came to be, and then, uh, you know, up to modern day story about prostitution, and then ending in Godard's uh, story about prostitution in the future and uh it, this i cannot recommend this movie <laughs> um but mostly just because it's really boring you know like i mean it's 100 percent sexist but it's just very strangely g-rated there's really not much here not that i was expecting a hardcore sex movie either which wouldn't have been <laughs> great either i did see that paris today was directed by claude autant laura who's one of these um one of these 50s French directors that the that the Cahiers du Cinema critics and the and the the new wave folks were, were were battling against. He sort of represents Papa's cinema to to those guys. So for for Godard's short film to to follow right on uh, Autant Laura's is uh, is kind of ironic. I don't know if that signals the uh, the end of the new wave or something, but. What would you say about the the filmmaking style of Paris Today compared to Anticipation? Was it called kind of old and stodgy, or uh, does it does it seem like the old the old guard is trying to step up their game a bit in uh, in nineteen sixty seven? It's definitely stodgy, but well, I mean, it starts off with narration, which is kind of interesting. It starts off with the cop narrating. I'm walking down the street and I'm walking my dog and these two women come up to me and you think it's a, a movie about him, but it ends up being about these women. So it's kind of strange because after this cop is done with this first scene where it seems like maybe they're trying to kind of ape even the, the new wave style, it then lapses into this sort of older, just un, unremarkable filmmaking. <laughs> like I, it's sort of hard to, to describe other than it, it definitely does not look modern the whole story is sort of dopey and and the 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 sense of humor that this this story has i would not call funny but it was clearly playing to the whole movie in a lot of ways is playing to this sort of older style you know haha women haha prostitutes oh how fun it is to be a prostitute kind of sensibility that i think 
I mean, never mind sounds dated today, but even seems quite dated in 67, especially at a time where younger voices are starting to be heard and they're starting to get out there. And a lot of this is like more, it feels more old guard for sure. Mm-hmm. But um, Godard's movie is called Anticipation is really strange. It, it It's like Alphaville redux in some ways, but meets almost made in the USA because it's super abstract. And it's also the most explicit and the least explicit of all of these because he sort of is talking about in the future, like it's, it's even hard to describe. It's also just confusing. He sets up this whole world where, you know, he shows people getting on an airplane to go to a different galaxy. And to get on the airplane, all they have to do is I get get their hands measured. Like he put like the the guy <laughs> puts his hand the 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 uh, soldier people getting on this plane. You know he just puts his hand over their hand, and if for some reason it, they don't measure up or get the correct reading, they get sent to this corner where they're then handed porno magazines, and for the man and the woman, mm-hmm. and the woman gets like these like beefcake. It, it seems more like gay porn. Uh, is handed to her, whereas the guy gets nude photos of women. And, you know, I guess they have to sit there and look at this and have a certain reaction. The whole the whole short is narrated by Anna Karina doing her best robot voice, where there's a lot of this, she says things along the line of radioactivity normal, and then talks mm-hmm. about whatever's happening. But it continually gets interrupted and punctuated by this almost um, medical, uh, machine-like punctuations of, of about radioactivity and, and uh, color American, color French, uh, to describe these black and white scenes. And I don't know. It ends essentially in, in this one guy goes to this other galaxy of, of love and prostitution it seems he gets put in this hotel he gets handed a prostitute who seems like a mechanical robot he has to take um a screwdriver in order to get her dress off which is (laughs) attached by a a metal collar around her neck it's very 60s actually but it's also very futuristic attached by this metal collar around her neck and hangs off of her and he has to use this the whole toolkit that she provides in order to get it off and then he sits there and talking to her and she won't respond. But then, so he returns this prostitute because she doesn't speak and he says, it's not turning him on. And they say, well, this has never happened. We're very embarrassed. And then they hand him instead a replacement prostitute who's Anna Karina in this like flowing, beautiful gown that looks almost like it's out of Gone with the Wind or something. And she explains that she's also a prostitute, but unlike the other one who was a physical body prostitute, she is a prostitute of words because she's from the literary <laughs> section of this this country. And so uh, she explains that you can only do one or the other. No one does both. And so she t- tries to turn him on with poetry. And he's a little more intrigued about her, but he gets frustrated that there's nothing he can do physically until by the end of this movie, they essentially invent kissing. Yeah. But so, yeah, it was it was strange. The Godard one is, was interesting. I knew I couldn't track down the movie itself, but I didn't think about the possibility of just watching the Godard short, which is probably on it YouTube. Might be on YouTube. So maybe yeah. I'll do that. But yeah, no. So I mean, that's Anna Karina in the '60s. I don't know. She, she to me, if I think of the '60s, I mean, like she's this, this portrait of of I mean the new wave for sure, and then also that mod fashion sense. Mm-hmm. She, she's a '60s woman. 100 percent 
and and in the in a good way, not the not the cheesy way and not the trendy way, even though she in, indulges in a lot of trendy things. But she always has her own uh, standout individual style, and uh, you know she says too of of Godard, even though they had this tumultuous relationship and they no longer speak, that you know she's she feels proud to have been his muse and she doesn't shy away from that that word and and you know she she looks back upon their collaboration as being something special and being something that brings her pride so you know that's good well he he immortalized her so i i, I guess you know she can't resent him for that at the very least if she is being generous it's it's probably for that reason i don't think we'd remember anna karina now if it weren't for jean-luc godard she hasn't done too much of note outside of his movies. I've I've seen Rivette's The Nun, and uh, you know that's that's about it. Honestly, I don't know if you have any impression of her outside of her Godard movies. She was in the Visconti, The Stranger, the Camus book with uh, Marcello oh, yeah. Mastroianni. <laughs> yeah, I've not seen that. Which is weird. That's a really weird one. And she also doesn't really get much of a chance to do too much, but also it's the stranger so that you know i like the the female characters and in, in that any character who isn't literally the main character is sort of secondary anyhow mm -hmm. but uh i think godard created an icon of the 60s uh with with anna karina and i i mean i i guess to say that that he created her is not fair she brought i don't know where how do you I mean, where, he... how, where do we draw the line but between uh, what what godard brought to to Anna Karina, the the icon, as opposed to what Anna Karina brought to Anna Karina, the icon. I think that's hard to say because I think the fact that he got to her so young, he very clearly had a hand in influencing her. But I wouldn't, I would not give him all the credit because she, there's definitely a clear growth. As, as I mean, even in these movies, as we were watching them, who she is in in Le Petit Soldat and, and who she becomes in Perot Le Fou there's a clear growth there's a clear you know evolution of her coming into her own and really finding herself and also in that first movie especially i feel like it's it's you know and knowing godard knowing that he thought that movies were something to to you you a camera pointed at an actor and not so much a camera creating uh, a story so you know it was the, the, that he gave this power to actors to to be both themselves and then also tell a story you know in that first movie she the, the she ends the movie ends with her you know having this 15 minute long listening in silence to this guy just go on and on and on and on and on and on and drone about himself and drone about what he thinks about women and her just listening in silence to then by the end of her career She's the one, you know, who's who has her own agenda and she's the one rejecting the guys and she's the one going off and doing her own thing. And, uh, you know, I think that there's something there to be said for her. I, I think that Godard definitely, he put the spotlight on her. He definitely gave her the initial push. But I don't think that it, had it just been one guy um, controlling her the entire time, I don't think that she would have become so individually standout. But at the same time, yeah. I agree that, like, you know, obviously... Without him, we don't have any of this, so he's obviously a huge part of it. Well, he does. He gives her the freedom to be herself, and he makes the kinds of movies where the success or failure of a movie depends on how much we like the actor playing the, the lead role. So I think that uh, 
you know, th this freedom that, that he, he gave her to, to improvise and sort of do, do whatever she wanted to do to a certain extent. She didn't have that freedom in other people's movies uh, because no, nobody makes movies the way Godard does. And, and, you know, even, you know, other, other new wave directors are, are, you know, still, you know, more stuck in, in traditional narratives and, and, and acting uh, than, than Godard. So even with a Rivette or any of these other um, French directors that she worked with that I'm not familiar with, she, uh, she, I'm sure she just had to, you know, she was given her lines and, and had to make the best of it rather than just uh, get to go wild like she does in, uh, in, in Godard and, and Pierre Le Fou in particular. Yeah, for sure. I'm looking at the list of other movies that she's made here, and there's one, uh, Bread and Chocolate is a favorite of mine, which is uh, Nino Manfredi and her, but that's in the 70s. So. Mm -hmm. if you guys yeah, and Chinese Roulette is a, is a satirical Fassbender movie that I remember her being in, but I can't tell you too much about, uh, about her performance in that. But, uh... Oh, there's also a, a really... A really mediocre movie called Anna by Serge Gainsbourg <laughs> which uh, is like the type of movie that you fall asleep while watching but it has some interesting moments yeah so I don't know I saw I, Anna Karina is wonderful she uh, is wonderful and iconic I you can't you really can't I mean like the fact that this is episode three and we're talking about Anna Karina like you had to <laughs> you can't talk about the 60s and not talk about her especially 60s film history. And I think that when you become a, when you start to get obsessed with movies, you're, uh, you're going to sooner or later run into Jean-Luc Godard. He's a, he's, he's a force that you have to reckon with sooner or later. And I think that, uh, that, I mean, it's important that we're, we're dealing with, with him early on, uh, for, for that reason, um, because he, he's in a way where, uh, we're, where advanced film studies begins, he's. Uh, I don't think anybody did more to change film language than Godard since, you know, since D.W. Griffith kind of invented the language in uh, 1918 or, or whenever Birth of a Nation came out. But I think that Anna Karina really was what allowed him to to experiment and to have them be popular and to have them find an audience, you know, have have them remembered today. So I think we we wouldn't we may not be talking about Godard today um if uh, if he hadn't had uh, anna karina there to to be his muse and his star and to and to and to pull us all in with with her charm and beauty we we certainly wouldn't remember godard if all he had done were the experimental things that he started doing in the late 60s and you know all his, his political movies his anti-narrative movies and i have a feeling he would have gotten to that place much sooner if it weren't for anna karina Grounding him, you know, grounding him, and you know, sparking his imagination uh, in a more traditional narrative way. Her being his movie star, so he had to make you know things that at least you know vaguely resembled traditional movies uh, to 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 serve the the star that he he found and created and served him so well. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think that that's well put. So we love you, Anna. What's, what's the next Cinema 60 going to be all about? Well, we were thinking about doing Cold War comedies. So uh, stick around for that one. That should have a pretty wide variety of people, things, and places. <laughs> so, we're, so like Dr. Strangelove will have to be part of the list, right? Yeah. I don't think we can talk about 60s Cold War comedies without that one, even though it's probably been a bit too over-discussed. It'll have to be a reference point for us. 
We'll go from the, the well-known to the lesser-known to even one Russian movie, which is Cold War adjacent. Mm-hmm. They were Soviets at the time, so I guess it counts. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, stick around, and uh, it'll be fun. All right. See you next time, Jenna. See you, Bart, on Cinema 60. You've been listening to Cinema 60 with Bart DeLauro and Jenna Ipcar. The theme song is Io la Conoscevo Bene by Piero Piccione. The closing theme is Go Go Gorilla by The Ideals. Check out cinema60.com for new episodes and supplemental material. That's cinema-60.com. And follow the show on Twitter at Cinema 60 Podcast. Thanks for tuning in.